This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Much of modern evangelical theology, piety, and practice is not driven as much by scripture as it is by history. Many evangelicals assume, as I once did, that the altar call is a biblical practice. They don't know, as I did not, that it is a 19th century practice. It's not found in the Bible, nor is it found in the Reformation. Indeed, the very practice of holding revivals is neither biblical nor historic Reformation practice. It's the product of a powerful 19th century movement that continues to influence us today in ways that we might not fully appreciate. Bob Godfrey is the fellow who first helped me to understand what happened in the 19th century and how it continues to influence us today. He's President Emeritus and Emeritus Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California. And he joins us now to talk about the continuing significance of the anxious bench. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. It's great to be with you, Scott. Well, you say that, but we haven't really had our conversation yet, so we'll see how you feel about it when we're done. Um, okay, well, my side will be great. <laughs> yes, your side is always great. Are you having a good summer? Uh, yes, a summer's good. Yes. Are you doing anything interesting? Well, I'm trying to write up a study I did some years ago in our adult Sunday school class at church on Romans. All those years ago, Calvin apologized for producing yet another study of Romans. And uh, if he had to apologize, I much more. But I'm titling it Paul's Pastoral Letter to the Romans and arguing we have to see it in a more church context than we sometimes do. It's not a mini systematic theology. It's a pastoral help to a congregation. Well, I like that because, of course, Romans was written to a congregation. And you're right, that gets omitted and Romans gets sort of recontextualized and, as you say, treated like a mini systematics. And also, it means that we take verses out of context from Romans, which is never a good thing to do. I'm not suggesting that um, Romans has been vastly misunderstood, but I think we can get a better pastoral appreciation for some of the things that Romans says if we pay a little more attention to the context than is sometimes done. Well, we'll look forward to that, and we'll have you on to talk about that when you're done and when that is available. So that sounds exciting. The reason that uh, I wanted to talk with you today is because recently I was having a conversation with someone trying to illustrate the differences between the Reformed theology, piety, and practice. And I was thinking about worship and how worship services are structured and the way that they have come to be structured oftentimes in American evangelical settings and the influence of revival and revivalism, and particularly the influence of Charles Finney. And, of course, when I think of Charles Finney, I think of you. Aren't you sweet? <laughs> I'm not, I'll have to ponder if there's any compliment in that, but nonetheless, go ahead. Well, the, the, <laughs> the reason when I think of Finney, I think of you, is because it was you who introduced me to Charles Finney when I was a seminary student way back when. You gave a lecture in your Modern Age course on the Finney revival, the Second Great Awakening, and you contrasted the system of the catechism and the system of the Reformed approach to the Lord's table versus the system of the altar call. And you said quite provocatively, because I still remember it all these years later, that the altar call came to replace essentially the Lord's Supper 
as the way people respond to God's grace. All this to say, I went to look for something to which I could point this person and say, well, here's an explanation of all of this, and I couldn't find it. And I thought, well, then I need to get you on the phone, and uh, we need to have this conversation so that there will be a record of this so that people can think about this. You do recall that I did not put these ideas forward as original to me, lest I be charged with plagiarism. Well, Um, no, no. um, But uh, was borrowing them from a distinguished 19th century Reformed theologian with whom you have a mixed relationship. I do. Yeah. And who was that 19th century figure? John Williamson Nevin of Happy Memory. (laughs) Sort of, yes. Except he's not remembered by hardly anyone except you and me. Yeah, there's some enthusiasm (laughs) in some quarters for the Mercersburg theology. That's true. But not always a lot of appreciation for some of the complications that became attached to Nevin. So we'll get to that. We'll talk about that. But first of all, why did you lecture to us about the Second Great Awakening? besides the fact that it happened, and it was in the period that you were covering. But I assume you chose to talk about it for a reason, because I presume it helps us to understand our contemporary situation. Yes, indeed. The early 19th century in particular uh, marks the growing shift in American culture generally and in church life in particular towards a more individualistic and certainly for the church a more revivalistic approach to religion. As I'm sure you remember vividly, I argued that already in the 17th century, one of the growing concerns of Reformed life was how do you avoid formalism? How do you avoid the problem of people being part of the church not because they're persuaded in their hearts that what the church is teaching is true, but just to sort of go along and get along. And um, a variety of efforts were made then to overcome formalism. And uh, in the 19th century, that effort to overcome formalism became very individualistic, very emotional, very focused on special meetings in a variety of ways. And um, that is part and parcel then of this major shift in America. As Thomas Bailey, a Stanford historian, said of politics in the early 19th century, it's when power began to shift from the snobs to the mobs. And that was true not only in politics, but also in religion. So that an educated clergy was increasingly not something valued in the 19th century. It was the ability to move the hearer and uh, bring them to what they would have called conversion. I'm glad you went there because that's where I wanted to go. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. (laughs) I'm reading the script you gave me. Yeah, very good. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So you're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Bob Godfrey, President Emeritus of Westminster Seminary, California, and Professor Emeritus of Church History here at Westminster Seminary, California, and a man about town, <laughs> and you you, you also uh, hail Not fellow... Not moving that fast about town. Go ahead. <laughs> hail fellow well met. And I, I've forgotten your title at Ligonier. I'm chairman of the board. Chairman of the board of Ligonier Ministries. That's right. We try to minimize the number of board, but... Uh, Um, I am chairman of the board of directors. Yes. In the 19th century, there was a fairly profound political and cultural shift, which helped to facilitate the phenomenon that you were describing, the Second Great Awakening. And you summarized it very quickly from snobs to mobs, colorfully. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Sometimes people talk about a Jacksonian revolution. 
right. what was happening. Because, you know, when things happen in the church, they happen in a broader culture, and they're not hermetically sealed from each other. Exactly. And I think that's why church historians are of such immense value. I'll say it because no one else because no one else will. The existence of individual Christians and the existence of the church is not merely a matter of theology. Theology is tremendously important, should never be neglected. But people make theological conclusions sometimes for other reasons than clear theological thinking. There are all sorts of influences that bear on us as individuals. And very frequently we don't see them very clearly, at least some of them in our own time. So it's important in looking back at the 19th century to see some of the ways in which the church began to be changed while insisting, as always seems to be the case, that they really weren't shifting at all. But in terms of the snobs, Bailey was thinking, for example, of the sort of Virginia aristocrats like Washington and Jefferson and Monroe, who were well-educated, who had estates. They weren't always making them a lot of money, but they had property. They were men of property. Similarly true of those who dominated Massachusetts. And these educated men had led the revolution and the founding of the republic. But then as frontiers pushed westward, and with the election of Jackson in, I think, 1820, 24, somewhere around there, suddenly the shift of of power moves west. And uh, we may not think of Jackson as someone from Tennessee as on the wild of the frontier, but he really was. And uh, this represents now increasing power in the hands of less educated, less settled people, more in the interests of individuals and more in the interests of change. And that comes with the church, too. When the revolution took place, you remember that the dominant denominations in America were Congregationalist, Presbyterian, and Episcopal. And by 1850, the dominant denominations had become Methodist and Baptist. And so that points to a real shift of movement away from denominations with a strongly educated clergy, away from denominations that uh, stressed a settled ministry, and we might almost call it a parish ministry, and to a much more vibrant, emotional, flexible, innovative kind of church life that seemed to capture the spirit of the frontier more. So at the same time, there is this massive cultural shift where power and the dynamic of the republic is sort of moving downward toward the masses. At that very same time, there is a renewed revival movement that begins very early in the 19th century. Right. Scholars look at episodes like the Cane Ridge Revival, which was on the frontier in Kentucky. Right, in Bourbon County. So what Can happened Can anything there? good come out of Bourbon County? That's a, <laughs> that's a topic for a whole office hour in and of itself. I don't know. Does Bourbon come from Bourbon County? I've always assumed it does. Okay. It, it, well, it may well come from other counties as well. But, I, well, um, I guess it does, yes. So um, what happened at Cane Ridge? Well, it was a camp meeting, as it came to be called. That is, the people who were very thinly distributed on the frontier in large farms came together for a concentrated time of fellowship, preaching, singing, many hoped of conversion. And uh, it became a very 
emotional moment. And we shouldn't be entirely surprised by that when we think about how lonely a lot of farm people must have been on the frontier, very separated from neighbors. And so this coming together of a large group of people led to extraordinary happenings that, of course, got reported far and wide as a work of the Spirit. And I don't think we have to say for sure there was no work of the Spirit, but not everything that happened there was a work of the Spirit. The cynics remarked that more souls were begotten than saved. But... um, I, have I, not, I had not heard that one. So. Uh, yeah, I have no idea if that's true. Old as I am, I wasn't there, <laughs> not there. in 1801. Some of the uh, phenomena associated with Cane Ridge would be familiar to observers of the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movement. Is that not correct? That is true. There were things like being slain in the spirit and speaking in strange sounds. So uh, definitely the emotional level, it was not, this is all very pre-Pentecostal, so It was not labeled the way Pentecostals would label it later. But, um, yes, there were strong physical and emotional expressions of something happening at this revival. And this sort of kicks off a larger movement that begins to spread. Well, you know, there had been signs of the Second Awakening even earlier than that with some of the consistent Calvinists in New England. The consistent Calvinists being not consistent Calvinists. Labels are always difficult in history. So that the second Great Awakening is not all anti-confessional reform. There are streams of it that are more reformed, but it comes to be dominated, and that's why Finney is such an exemplar. It comes to be dominated by non-reformed voices. And, you know, the other cultural factor that's important here is that the 19th century is a century of great optimism in America. And when people are tremendously optimistic. Calvinism doesn't always sell itself well. Calvinism is not inherently optimistic about things in the short run. We're very optimistic about things in the long run. So this mood of optimism very much encouraged a theology that was more Wesleyan, more Arminian, more Pelagian in Finney's case. That is optimism about human ability to be convinced to become a Christian. There are many important callings in this life. Physicians, nurses, police officers, and firefighters, they all save lives until Jesus returns. Everyone helped by a doctor, a nurse, a firefighter, or a police officer, however, will die. And then what? There is another calling that is vitally and eternally important. The Ministry of the Gospel. At Westminster Seminary, California, we've been educating men for pastoral ministry since 1980. Scripture says, After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's John six sixty-six through 69 Jesus does have the words of eternal life, and he's commissioned his church and his ministers, his servants, to announce them to the world. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to pastoral ministry or to some other kind of service. We're grateful for your prayers and support as we seek to continue to fulfill our calling to help men and women fulfill their callings for Christ, his gospel, and his church. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, 
and his church. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking to W. Robert Godfrey about the Second Great Awakening, about Charles Finney, and about the anxious bench and the effect of this movement, this Second Great Awakening, upon contemporary evangelical theology, piety, and practice. And one of the figures, or the figure, who comes to be the central figure in the Second Great Awakening was Charles Grandison Finney, who was born in 1792 and who died in 1875. And by 1825, he was a revival preacher in what is known now as the burned-over district in upstate New York. So walk us through why upstate New York is called the burned-over district, and what did Charles Finney do to and with this movement, the Second Great Awakening? Well, um, upstate western New York comes to be known as the burned-over district because it produced a number of very emotional religious movements. The Mormons have their origins there. William Miller and the Millerites have their origin there. I think the Oneida community, Utopian community has its origin there. So it got to be talked of as burned over because so many religious groups claiming to have profound insight into the truth and promising to completely change your life and maybe the life country had originated there, eventually leaving people there kind of worn out with all of this uh, religious stuff. Well, fervor, right? I mean, think, think of it. Yeah. You, you've got uh, the Mormons and the Millerites, just those two movements alone, let right. alone uh, Finney. So these are really important, dynamic movements. Right. The two groups that are still, to this day, likely to come and knock at your door come out of upstate New York. One of them, a water diviner, in my view, a con man, but a, a religious entrepreneur, Joseph Smith, and the other uh, sort of a prophet of the return of Christ. We shouldn't blame him for all of it, but indirectly gives birth both to Seventh-day Adventism and to Jehovah's Witnesses. So a lot of what we know as contemporary American Christianity comes out of these movements, and a lot of it is rooted in upstate New York, which is kind of extraordinary. Right. So Finney, I think his origins are in Connecticut, but uh, as a young man, he's in western New York and is converted in a Presbyterian church. He's a lawyer as a young man, and um, he never goes to seminary. I always like to mention that because seminaries often get blamed for producing heretics, and uh, Finney was able to become a heretic without any help from the seminary. So um, <laughs> yeah. that's perversely comforting. <laughs> yeah, Calvinist comfort. Yes. When you use the H-word, you drop the H-bomb relative to Finney, you're not just being a mean-spirited, old-school, old-side Calvinist, Reformed guy. You're actually using it in its strict sense, right? Well, I sort of hope both things, but uh, yes. <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive. I am meaning it in its old sense. That is, someone who embraces a theology that is so contrary to revealed religion that it is disqualifying for salvation. Now, of course, I can't read Finney's heart, but what he wrote is uh, heretical. It is far from anything the Bible says about sin and human need and salvation, for that matter. Can you be specific? What in particular is it that is disqualifying? For example, what did he say about the consequences of the fall? Well, he said that we still have a perfectly free will, 
And uh, the purpose of the preacher is to awaken, as he put it, the dormant moral powers in human beings. So we have moral power. The only problem is those powers are asleep. And the preacher, if he yells loud enough, may be able to wake you up to exercise your moral powers. And that's why revival of religion, he said, is a scientific enterprise. You do the right things and you'll get the right result. Let me stop you because that process, that sort of mechanization of religion and of revival and of salvation is a very 19th century thing to do. Right. Right. If you just get the right method, you'll get the right outcome. And socially and economically, what's happening at the very same time he's inventing this machine for salvation? Well, we're in the midst of an industrial revolution. And right. We're mechanizing everything. And so we're turning over the production of things to machines, building machines to do things. And so now Finney has built, in effect, a salvation machine. And if you just right. build the salvation machine correctly. We operate, could call it the cotton gin of the soul. Very good. I think there's a... I think there's a book in there somewhere. Somewhere, yes. You can put it on my list of titles of books never written. (laughs) Or yet to be written, yet to be written. Yet to be written. We'll be hopeful about this. So he sets up a system so that if you just use the system correctly, right, you put the raw material in at the beginning of the machine and you turn the crank, and the crank in this case is a series of steps that the revivalist follows, out will come a more or less guaranteed result. Is that a fair characteristic or characterization? Yeah, absolutely. And the message that is preached has very little to do with Christ. Uh, He really rejects the historic reform doctrine of justification, reformation doctrine of justification, and really makes salvation dependent on your action of repentance and faithfulness. In that sense, he has a kind of modern ring to it. What's of the it's essence all, of the system, though? So what is the revival preacher supposed to do? And how is that, say, uh, your typical Finneyite tent service? How is it structured? And what is he supposed to do with the people coming into the tent, the raw material for the machine? Well, the critical thing and the point of focus for Nevin is not what we now call rightly the altar call, but what they called then the anxious bench. And so seats were left open in the front of the meeting place, whether it was a building or a tent. And those who were being affected by the preaching were asked to come forward to sit on the anxious bench. And it got its name from those who were becoming anxious about the state of their souls. And so they could be particularly preached at and appealed to. And then they might come forward and kneel at the altar to consecrate themselves to Christ. But it was for the anxious bench that Finney initially became well-known, and his whole approach here was called the new measures, the new way of doing things. And he would have emotional testimonies delivered by various sinners who'd repented. So there was an emotional level to the meeting. And Finney became a kind of exemplar of iron brimstone preaching. That was a key characteristic of the way he communicated. What was the nature of the music and how was it used in these services? You know, I'm not as familiar in detail with the music. Certainly as the 19th century wore on, music became more and more central and more and more emotional. But I'm not just sure. Do you know what Finney did about music? 
I'm not sure about Finney, but I'm confident that the pattern of the Finneyite revival service was two-part or it was bipartite. And so uh, the way I've always put it for years is first you sing them and then you preach them. So yeah, you yeah. How much exactly Finney himself made use of that, I'm not just sure. I should know, but I don't. But you're absolutely right. As the century wore on, singing became more and more central as emotional preparation. And often, you know, a half hour or more of singing would be critical to uh, warming up the crowd. And then the preacher's job is sort of, so if we use a baseball analogy, because as you and I are speaking, it's baseball season, you know, you have your starting pitcher, we'll leave out the middle reliever, and he pitches for four, five, six innings, and then the closer comes. So think of the music as the starting pitcher, and he kind of warms people up, and uh, you do that for 30 minutes, and the music is carefully selected to achieve a particular emotional response, and then here comes the salesman or the closing pitcher to close the deal. And the goal is to get people to come forward to the anxious bench and to make a commitment to Christ. And if you just use the right procedure, you can get the outcome. Right. And it worked in a sense. I mean, you could get people to move physically down the aisle to the anxious bench. I'm not saying it worked necessarily to get people into heaven. I'm not saying it didn't. Yep, right. But just observationally, this was a procedure that you could see and use to move people physically and emotionally from point A to point B. So as a sales technique, it was very successful. Right. And, you know, the key verse often used was, he who confesses me before man, I will confess before my Father in heaven. And so Jesus is telling you, you have to come forward to uh, confess your faith publicly. And if you resist this, you're really resisting the Holy Spirit. And that was very explicitly said sometimes. I'm not saying Finney necessarily said this, but I've heard a preacher say, if you don't come now, you will have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. I came to faith in the context of a broad evangelical revivalist context where we sang just as I am. And not just a few times, (laughs) right? We sometimes Mm -hmm. sang, uh, you know, 10 or 12 verses or saying the same verses again and again until finally someone would come forward. Thinking it was the only way to the exit. (laughs) Well, there was a lot of psychological and emotional pressure in the context to come forward. And again, there were people, again, I'm not saying Finney did this, but as time went on, there would be preachers who would seed the crowd. They would convince themselves that part of the impediment to coming forward was the fear of being the first one or the only one. And so they'd have other people in the crowd who um, were supposedly already Christians who would come forward just to make it easier for other people to come forward. So there was all sorts of manipulation going on to foment this kind of response. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And that practice became institutionalized in the Billy Graham revivals. The Crusades that uh, traveled across the country. Graham seated the crowds with volunteers. And when the altar call was given, people would begin streaming out of the crowd toward the stage. Right. And, of course, Graham, who I think had a great deal of integrity, didn't claim that these were converts. He claimed these were counselors coming forward to uh, help the converts. But it had the same effect of making people who are undecided whether to go forward or not feel freer to go forward. 
And why is it significant for us today, besides just sort of mere historical knowledge and trivia and uh, interest in the past, why is it of practical use for Christians broadly and Reformed Christians particularly to understand the nature and effect and effect of the Second Great Awakening broadly and the Finneyite system specifically? How does it continue to have effect and affect today? Well, I think one could say that Pentecostalism is a kind of radicalization of the Second Awakening, becoming even more emotional. And um, depending on how you read Pentecostalism, and certainly Pentecostalism is a very varied movement, even more manipulative. The great issue, of course, is what does the Bible teach us about what is true theology and what should the church in its life and worship really look like? And um, for those of us who are Reformed, we believe that the theology of a radical Arminian like Finney, and that's a very complimentary thing to say to him, he was really more Pelagian, or the theology and practice of Pentecostalism, is it biblical? Is it what the Bible calls us to be and do? And when the church fails to be biblical, even when it thinks it's promoting the cause of Christ by its innovations, it ultimately sets back the cause of Christ. So Finney in his autobiography, which is often neglected, mourns about how many of the people who came forward have not persevered as Christians. Finney himself recognized that this movement was nowhere near as successful as he had made it out to be. And um, we have to ask ourselves then, how do you make real disciples of Christ? It's not by getting someone to walk a few yards to the front of a meeting place. It's by discipling people. Amazingly, that's what Jesus said in the Great Commission. We need to disciple people. And uh, that's what brought Nevin to contrast the system of the anxious bench with the system of the catechism, which carefully instructs people in the truth of the faith over time, thereby leads them into paths of faithfulness. One of the things I've noticed is the temptation in the PNR, you know, Presbyterian and Reformed world, to try to appropriate aspects of the Finneyite system. So you'll have worship services where people sing for 30 or 40 minutes and get, you know, fairly emotional. And then the preacher steps up on the platform or into the pulpit and conducts the service. And that, it seems to me, that bipartite service, rather than having a sort of a dialogue, right? Historically, the Reformed have thought of worship as a dialogue where the Lord speaks and the people respond. And the whole service is structured by that dialogue. And it has a beginning and it has a movement and then an end. And were we to pay attention to Calvin, he thought and hoped and prayed that the service would conclude not with an altar call, at least not with the Finneyite altar call, but with an altar call of another kind, and that was a call to come forward to the Lord's Supper. So that was one of the points that you made way back when and continued to make. Help us see the contrast between these two systems, the system that Calvin had in mind and the dialogical approach to worship versus the sort of Finneyite bipartite approach to worship. Well, especially as Calvin saw the service, at least from time to time, culminating in the Lord's Supper, he understood that the Lord invites his disciples to dine with him at his table and to be fed with himself. And every time you have the Lord's Supper, it's a moment of decision, in a sense. Uh, Do I belong to Jesus? Do I 
belong at his table? Have, have I examined myself as the Apostle Paul calls for to ensure that I'm ready to come to the table? So Christ himself has established a moment of reflection and of uh, commitment before coming to the table. And, you know, it's very interesting that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, you know, talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper originally, in the night in which he was betrayed. And so Paul, I think, is very much emphasizing there, are you a betrayer or are you a follower? What is the state of your soul in relation to Christ? And in the supper, as in the preached word, we find Christ mediating his benefits and himself to his people. That's an ongoing reality. It's not a once-for-all business of um, walking the sawdust trail, as they used to say and then being right with God forever, or maybe only briefly. And the supper is not about our doing. I mean, everything you say is is perfectly right. But in its essence, the supper is the gospel made visible and given to the believer so that the service concludes, if had Calvin his way, with Christ giving himself to his people once again visibly so that they've gathered in this service, they've had this dialogue, as it were, all the way through the service, the Lord speaking, the people responding, and then finally the whole service concludes with people, and again, this might be unfamiliar to the listener, with the congregation getting up row by row or table by table and coming forward and being fed, as the Reformed churches confess, on the body and blood of Christ, received by grace alone through faith alone. Right, absolutely. You know, the old Dutch Reformed baptismal liturgy, I think, is helpful there. It says all covenants have two parts. There's the gracious ministry of the Lord, and there's the faithful response of people. And at every point of worship, both of those things are present in a profound sense. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.